episode six, our first guest interview of August. I don't know about you guys, but I hope you've checked out our schedule of the month that we've posted on our Instagram. We have some really powerful, incredible women coming up. But today is all about Miss Antoinette Latouf. So Antoinette is a multi-award winning journalist and a diversity advocate. She's a senior journalist at Network 10 currently and the director and co-founder of Media Diversity Australia. In 2019, she was named among Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. Antoinette is also an ambassador for parents' mental health organisation, the Gidget Foundation, which we speak a little bit about in the show, and also for the Australian Thyroid Foundation. We spoke about a myriad of things today, and we really took a nice spin on balance, talking about how it features within the media space and really how unbalanced the representation from senior panels are, especially uh, this year with a lot of worldly events going on and how that's been represented across the media. We also speak about her involvement and personal experience uh, in mental health when it comes to being a parent. This segment was super raw and emotional, and I'm so grateful to Antoinette for sharing her story and opening up so that other people can connect if they may be feeling the same way. And lastly, we share a really incredible story, one of those miracle ones you read in the paper about. Literally, this one went viral across the world, so you'll have to stay tuned to the end to hear all about that and her own unique take on that experience. But for now, sit down and enjoy Antoinette's story and our chat. All righty. Antoinette, welcome to the Balance Theory Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Before we dive into it, I just wanted to share with everyone, and you actually, I haven't told you in person, how we sort of came to having you on the show. Yeah, sure. So I was doing my mundane routine walk from town hall to work, trudging through town hall, and um, they had on the sides these like scaffolds, but they had advertising on it. And for some reason, it caught my eye. And there were all these like what I would describe as like power figures Just, you know, these gorgeous women all dolled up and they just had a little, like, little inscription underneath it, your name and what you do. And I was drawn to it. So I walked over and lo and behold, I saw your name and I saw that you were associated with um, the media diversity side of things and did my homework. And here we are. Oh, awesome. But yeah, so you basically broke my mundane routine. Oh. And, um, And as I, you know, did a little bit of diving into what you do. Yeah, Um, it connected really well with my media passion, which I was just saying to you. I studied at uni as well. Yep. So I would love for you to share, I guess, your journey in within your career and your area of fulfillment, how you've gotten to where you are today, and and the little bits and pieces you do today. Uh, So let's start with that poster and maybe work our way back. Backwards. Um, So the QVB um, for those who are Sydney listeners or those who may know the building. Um, decided that they wanted a campaign to elevate women who were shaping the city. And so they didn't go with models, which is probably you were drawn to real women. We were real women and we were styled. And they chose three different women um, from three different industries who were just, who they believe are being influential. For me, um, I had just been uh, announced as among the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence, and for that, it's uh, to do with my work in media diversity. Uh, so for those who may not know a lot about news and current affairs in Australia, actually perhaps it's come to light more recently, um, we have a pretty monolithic and monocultural media, mm. news media. So that means, by and large, people are of the same ethnic heritage, 
uh, often of the same socioeconomic heritage, too often mm. from the same geographic heritage. Um, and not so, too diverse. Not diverse, culturally <laughs> and linguistically diverse. And that really became apparent after the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. So even though this not-for-profit is something I started with a good friend of mine three years ago, it's really been in the last three months that people have started to notice. Mm. When it comes to covering issues of race, injustice and racial inequality, our news media is just not equipped to do it because mm. too often they'll get together an all-white panel and go, oh, did you think that was racist? Like, oh, no, I don't think it was racist. Did you think that was racist? Oh, no. Oh, awesome. Of course. Thank you, three <laughs> blondes from the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah. Of course you wouldn't. What was the last time you were subjected to institutional and systemic racism? Yeah. Um, so that's what that billboard was about. Um, so I'm still a working journalist. Uh, but that was started by myself um, and a range of other diverse journos who felt frustrated, who felt that we were far enough along in our careers to start making noise and pissing mm. people off, because essentially that's what we're doing. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, but that we knew that as well as being part of the media, we wanted to shape it from the inside, but also from the outside and try um, and make it more representative of our very multicultural country. Yeah, well, that's right. You've got people reporting who are not reflective of the people no. they're reporting to. And yes. that's, that's a big um, imbalance there. It's it's an enormous one. And it's not only covering, you know, we don't, we don't believe only brown people can cover brown people's stories or Asians can cover Asian stories, but you're absolutely missing. You've got these cultural blind spots. You're, mm. you're disconnected to communities or you're missing certain angles. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just not okay to be so out of touch. No other industry would be... Uh, I mean, the data, Our new data is about to come out in a few weeks, but I would say very few industries are as white as the media. And mm. you, you don't really understand how bad it is until you walk into a newsroom. And I've worked at the four of the five television, free-to-air television networks. And other than the cleaning staff, the Arab security guards, um, and maybe someone working at the cafe attached to the building, mm. almost nobody else looks like you or I. Yeah. Um, wow. It's not something you really um, think about externally, yes. like not yes. being involved in that yes. environment. You, you, but... you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, often, and I, should, I mean, it's terrible for me to say this, but I walk through, I'm like, this looks like Hitler's Aryan Germany. Like, mm. it just, it's just... It baffles me yeah. that this is these are the people who are uh, informing us and, and shaping public discourse and telling us what does and doesn't matter and selecting which stories. Yeah, and tell. even like representing our voices, right, yes. on, on certain issues. Yeah. So in your, since from when you started in media to now, yes, um, because you're of um, Lebanese background yes. as well, how have you as a Lebanese woman in yes. the media, how have you fit into the whole piece and how has it changed, I guess, since since the day you started? Okay, so I was at high school when September 11 happened um, and seeing the subsequent coverage of Arabs and Muslims and terrorists and um, that for me, I guess, put a real fire in my belly to want to get into the industry. And then when I was at university, I think in my first year at university, the Cronulla riots happened and so for those who... Uh, I think most Australians will be familiar with the Cronulla mm. riots. It's about 2005. These horrible race mm. riots between, um, I guess to put it simply, you know, Anglo beachgoers who were protective of their turf, and Middle Eastern men. There was, you know, animosity and problems. There were mm. problems of violence, and um, uh, I think in some cases it a bit of sexual harassment. So there were, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that there were tensions and things that needed to be addressed, um, but that was really beat up a lot by the media. And in the end, Alan Jones um, uh, was actually found to have contributed, to, yeah. to have incited yeah. 
people to go out and, you know, to fight for your turf or whatever his language was. Um, and so it was ugly. It was an ugly time for Australia, which, which, which no matter what way you looked at it, it was an ugly time for this seemingly uh, multicultural and really cohesive Accepting, society. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, apparently the poster child for a really diverse community just showed that the tensions were simmering and all they needed was a bit of, uh, a bit of egging on by mainstream media yeah. for it to turn really, really gross. Um, and so, again, I was so frustrated by who was telling that story and how it was told and the voices that were missing. And I was sick of my community being spoken to, spoken about, and us not having a seat at the table. But again, at this stage, I'm probably still at university. Were you studying media? I was studying journalism. Oh, well, I started a communications degree yep. and social inquiry, so which is... Uh, sort of uh, advocacy policy research so interestingly I've kind of come full circle and Mm. combined the advocacy stuff with with communication skills Um, at that point when you're in a newsroom I was probably I've then started my career at SBS because traditionally that's where people like me go to and that's where you fit on that's where you fit in and um, that's where you get um, sort of a pathway in Um, but it's still I was still different. I was still um, all management um, and people in positions of power were not diverse. And interestingly, more than 10 years later, that still remains the case. That even though um, front-facing SBS is diverse when it comes to who makes editorial decisions, who are the executive producers, news directors, um, and and those people who really shape the content and shape and make careers, they're not diverse. Mm. Um, And that, again, will come out in our research. Um, but at that time, I was still the only person hopping on a train from Western Sydney, getting the you know changing at Central Station, going over the bridge. So oh, you went over the bridge. I went over the oh, bridge. Wow. New world. <laughs> um, so culturally, I was different. Socioeconomically, I was different. Geographically, I was different. Um, and so, how about the gender? Was it no? Uh, by balanced? that, I don't have to say um, SBS is quite. You know, has always in my well, my experience, and even now looking at some of the data, uh, being quite gender inclusive. So the media has, in the past ten years, made quite a lot of gains in terms of having more women anchor shows, more women in executive producer mm. positions. Not quite to the top yet at news director positions, um, but they're all uh, Anglo Celtic women. Mm. Um, so it's great for gender diversity, but we're quite, not quite there on the cultural come, side. On the cultural side. Um, so yeah, at that time I came out. Um, um, uh, in an article in The Guardian a few weeks ago, which you may or may not have come across, uh, about the horrific bullying I experienced at SBS, which is why I left. Um, so, in, again, uh, since George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, there's been a bit of a reckoning about the state of our media and who mm-hmm. tells our stories and how reflective they are. Um, and some people have come out of who were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to say, you know, they left SBS because of... Uh, racism and because of bullying and because Mm. of harassment and it took years and years for them to speak about it some left the industry entirely and it took me almost 15 years to say the reason I left SBS um, was because of really toxic bullying by a very senior person um, who there was no way I could progress in that organization knowing Mm. that this person was there to make my life a living hell and I was probably 21 at this stage Um, was that um culturally targeted racism look like, I didn't uh, unlike the indigenous journos I didn't experience overt racism like they had horrific things said to them um, but I do think it played a role um, because everybody else on the team and everybody else who was treated well was of a similar a similar type of person a right. similar age similar demographic they lived in certain sim- same areas they were all of the Anglo background um, so it wasn't like oh you horrible Arab it wasn't overt discrimination um, 
but it was definitely bullying. It was definitely exclusion. I was definitely the only person who was different. And it's hard at, as a young journalist to be in that environment and to think, am I still going to have a career? Mm. Am I welcome here? And what we have found with our organisation at that point, a lot of people leave the industry. They just yeah, think, pivot. too hard. This isn't going to work for me. And, and if this was me at SBS, if you feel the odds are stacked against you at SBS, what chance do you have to prosper um, yeah, at right. other networks and at other organisations? Um, yeah. So, mm. so um, what would you say to, like, I'm sure the, I'm sure that sort of dynamic between like top executive management and lower kind of people making it through the ranks. I'm sure that's not exclusive just to media. I'm sure people experience it across legal finance. I'm sure it is quite a shared experience in corporate. Do you mean uh, the, the bullying? bullying? The bullying dynamic. Um, um, not to say it, it may yeah. be better or worse, but... Yeah, look, but um, but potentially, um, I've only ever worked in the media, so I have mm. no experience elsewhere. Um, I think what is really, uh, what's really difficult, whether it's bullying, racism, sexual harassment, it's really difficult when there's a power imbalance. Yes. So when you are yes. super junior... It is so hard to complain. Yeah. It is so hard to think, what do I do? Do I cop it? Yeah. Is this? And I remember I did say when I left, because I, I went to the news, uh, to the news director at the time and I, 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 I told him what I was experiencing, but this person was, you know, I was a little miss nobody. This person was very senior. Um, and then this senior person got wind of the fact that not, not, not only was I leaving, but that I had notified other people. I had made a tiny bit of noise. Um and I was pretty much told that, you know, when I was your age, I was treated X, Y, and Z. When I was your age, I would never do X, Y, and Z. So as though that you just had to cop it. And I think there's some of those some of those attitudes have come out in the legal profession when it comes to sexual harassment. Like, mm. oh, well, if you're a pretty young thing and it just so happens a partner uh, pays attention to you, well, you should be grateful that you're getting his time. Yeah. Not that he's being, and... yeah, he's being a disgusting perv and yeah. he just needs to draw the line and keep his lewd comments and hands off you. Mm. You get, oh, well, you should be grateful. Yeah. Or, or what were you wearing? Or what did you do? Or, and right. that, that, that kind game. of victim blaming is horrendous. And I think that's why... Um, People either leave the industry or internalise it and carry that trauma for a really long time. Well, what I was going to ask for anyone who, I guess, is in that shared experience, whether it be um, on any level of that spectrum, what advice would you give to them? Or I guess if you had to advise yourself yeah. 15 years ago, um, you know, if, if, if they do feel helpless, if they do feel powerless, and as are they going to jeopardise their career if they say it's something? Really, you know, what it's a really hard kind it's of... It's really difficult. And I think I mentioned that in the interview I gave to The Guardian because I was like, looking back at it, I felt I had no choice but to cop it and quietly leave. Um, I'm a woman. I was young. I came from a working-class family. I'm an Arab. The odds are stacked against me. Mm. You know, like, there's, no matter which way I look, the odds were stacked against me. Um, and I think that's why it's important with the work Media Diversity Australia is doing. I didn't have a community. I didn't have a support, support system. I didn't have someone to even just to vent to. And that's what we're trying to do, to create uh, mentorship programs, networking opportunities, um, and support people as they progress in their careers. It would have been super, if I wasn't so tenacious, it would have been so easy at that point to just bow out and yeah. go, you know what, my dad told me this was never going to work. Um that there wasn't a place for someone like me, that I should just become a hairdresser, keep yeah. it simple. Um, the timeline. Yeah, and just do do what people in my community had done around me and successfully done around me. Um, so at that point, oh, God, I don't think I, given, given the environment, given how 
a monocultural the newsroom was. I don't think I had a choice to do anything else. Yep. Um, I think I made the right decision in leaving. Um, but we're, what we're trying to do is ensure that that kind of environment doesn't exist. Right. And had leadership been a little bit more inclusive and diverse, some, I mean, people saw what was happening. And so much so that all these people came out of the woodworks after seeing the article going, oh, I can't believe you finally spoke about it. I know you were speaking about X. So I'm thinking there are enough people who witnessed it. Mm. Um, and I, well, I would hope that a more diverse and inclusive leadership team would go, hey, this is not okay. We're going to step in. We're going to sort this out. We're going to provide you with some support. Hey, we're going to pull you up on your behaviour. Mm. Um, and, and, and ideally, that's what Media Diversity Australia will help do. So that if someone, and no doubt someone will be in the position I was in when I was 21, um, but they'll have a support mechanism around them so that they don't have, that I'd have to leave. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. And it is about, you know, it's not just the little people having having the right mentality in the sports, about the top-down management being, you know, complete mind shift, I Absol- suppose. It's, it's like everything yes. going on with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. As you say now, it's, it's about the community inclusion within whatever space you're in. Absolutely. So. And, and and it has a trickle-down effect from the top that's down. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Thank you for sharing oh, your story. Oh, that's okay. Um, just moving on now with, I guess, you've spoken a little bit about the imbalance within the media scope, but if we take that more, I guess, on a, on a personal level, mm. what does balance mean to you in your life and how would you say it features across your health relationships yeah. um, and any, I guess, fulfillment that you would classify within your personal life? Um, I, I think um, the pursuit of balance is a, is a constant one and an evolving right. one and yeah. a shifting one. Um, for me balance and adjusting to the new norm as a mother has been um, a a difficult journey for me and one that continues to pose challenges and one that I um, need to keep in check Um, so I have a really supportive and wonderful husband I have my family around me um, but I have struggled with mental illness since having my second child Um, so for me balance is about you know adequate sleep exercise um making making sure i'm uh, i've alerted to any triggers because i am now aware of triggers where mm. i can start to spiral um saying no to certain things it's very difficult yeah. um in an, in an industry point. which is um in many ways shrinking and when many people are losing their jobs and when you're presented and, and thankfully as i am with many opportunities it's difficult to turn them down mm. um and what i'm attempting to do is say no more in a professional capacity and also in a social capacity. And sometimes it's really hard to go, you know what? No, I'm not going to come out for Friday drinks. Mm. And just to say, no, I need to look after myself and look after my family. Um, So, yeah, it's. I don't think I have the balance right, but I'm I'm always trying to um, be aware that if I'm not the best version of me, I can't be the best mother, I can't be the best wife, um, or the best journalist. No, you've you've hit it spot on the head because... Everything we do and say here is that balance is an ongoing journey yeah. and it's not something that works for you today that and works for you tomorrow. It's something you need to, you know, it's it's a level you're constantly striving to achieve, but you're never really perfect because life just keeps changing. And yeah. we speak about it's kind of like setting goals. Once you hit the goal, you always push the the end mark further back. Yeah. You know? So balance is sort of the same. You might reach a sort of level and then, you know, things shift, 2020 happens, whatever. Yeah. But it's all about you know, knowing yourself and what works for you. So you can be the best in all your areas of life. So you've, you've really summed that up. 
Yeah, and I think there are just spanners, be it the pandemic or with a child, you know, with a child transitioning from school, uh, from um, from preschool to school, you know, needing that extra support, um, a big project at work, um, not at the moment, but my husband um, used to travel a lot for work. There are so many variables, mm. and for me, one thing that my um, my counsellor and I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a big supporter of uh, seeking psychological or psychiatric or whatever support you need was always like, look at your plate, you know, on a weekly basis. What really needs to be on the plate. Um, and slowly take things off that yeah. don't need to kind be there. Everything. Um, and it's okay not to do everything at once. It's okay to say no to things. Um, and once you start to take things off your plate, you'll feel less overwhelmed, less burnt out. And unfortunately, the more busy people feel or pulled in different directions, what often goes is sleep and exercise and the things that really require you to be the best version of you. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of an irony, isn't it? It is. It's just like, oh, I don't have time to exercise. Oh, I can only sleep six, you know, five hours mm. the past three nights. And if, if that happens to me in maybe three or four days where I don't sleep enough or I don't exercise, mm. my mental my mental health starts to go down immediately. I'm exactly the same. Immediately. Yeah. And, I yeah. need to, and I need to shift and I'm, I just have to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to bed. Yeah. I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm going to bed. Yeah. So um, do you have like daily rituals or just a couple things that you routinely do that you can share that form part of your like daily uh, habits yeah so I look at my plate every day so I, and I whether that's my diary or what's requested of me at work and every day I try and put everything on my plate and think okay what really needs to be on this and so I, I try if I need to take certain things and mm-hmm. Taking something off my plate will be, you know what, I'm not going to make that really labour-intensive meal tonight or I'm I'm not going to finish that report for work. I can do a bit of it, to, you know, a bit of it later tonight or a bit of it tomorrow. So for me, it's that kind of plate exercise. Um, I try and, ex- um, I try and phys- do physical exercise every day. Um, yeah, they're probably the two things for me that keep me somewhat balanced. <laughs> Help you start the day, right? Yeah. Well, that's good. you got yeah. your physical health and mental health yeah. check first thing in the morning. For, yeah. And I yeah. try and do that every day. Yeah. yeah, nice. I just wanted to move on. You did um, you did mention briefly the struggles you had yeah. um, becoming a parent. Yes. Um, and I guess that is a big adjustment that will require you to alter your balance. You know, you've gone from prioritizing your own needs, your own wants, and that like overnight in a second becomes secondary. Mm-hmm. And this child becomes, I mean, I'm not speaking from experience yeah. as a parent, but I know what, you know, what my parents did for me and I know what it takes to become a parent yes but um i'd be grateful if you could share your i guess struggle with that because i yeah. feel like especially now with social media becoming a, a mum, especially mm. is very idealized and you know it's kind of like the trophy image to have the baby and the photos and this and, and that the right but pram and that's the, right the products yeah. and the matching outfits and yeah. which is all great and i'm not i'm not undermining that but i think yeah. the realness is in the actual experience and the yeah. conversations a lot of people don't have and the highlights real that doesn't really include all these mm. um, these experiences. So if, if um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing your... Sure, and it's interesting that you mentioned social media because it was this particular photo I can remember. So I have two daughters and it was when my second daughter, actually just before she was born, that my um, anxiety and insomnia started to kick in. So at about 37 weeks, I just, I just wasn't myself. Things were starting to unravel. Um, it was a combination of, I think... Uh, being physically tired I'd covered a few um right up until I stopped working some really horrible things like the um Link Cafe siege mm. uh, at very you know very heavily pregnant um so I think it was digesting some of that trauma 
uh, with the unknowns and the anxiety of what it would be to have another child. Um, and and this was all um, emotions that were foreign to you during your first pregnancy? Well, they or? were bubbling away at the first one, but you're told, oh, the baby blues, everyone has a bit of a cry, it's normal. I managed with my with my first daughter. I didn't love parenthood to begin with, which is you know kind of something people don't say. Yeah, I didn't connect with her immediately, um, but after a couple of months, I kind of found my rhythm and enormous amounts of joy and love. Mm. And um, so these feelings were all a bit strange. Um, but about four months, sorry, four days postpartum, I had posted a picture. I was out um, for a walk, and I was incredibly thin. So I was incredibly thin. In the kind of the last trimester, which is uncommon, which is kind of an alarm bell that something's not right. I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, um, and so it looked like I hadn't had a baby. Like I was four days past postpartum, and I was mm. in my clothes again and in my exercise gear, and everybody was writing, "Oh my god, you look so amazing! Oh my god, you've bounced right back, super mom, unicorn mom, blah blah blah." And I'm thinking, they have no idea. They have no idea mm. what you're internalizing. What? Um, the, the panic, the anxiety, how much I'm crying, how much I'm not sleeping, the fact that when they handed my baby to me, I just handed her straight to my husband because I didn't actually even want to hold her. Mm. Um, and there's a huge amount of shame for having those feelings because it was a, it was a, be- it was a fine labour and she latched on beautifully and she was perfectly healthy and gorgeous and all of, those, baby. all of those things. And I looked amazing, according to everybody on mm. Facebook. Um, but I was so thin because I was so unwell. And um, it wasn't until um, things probably spiralled again over the next three weeks. Um, And I was only out on the bay walking because I was so panicked and I felt so claustrophobic being indoors. And I Mm. got discharged out of hospital immediately because I was pacing up and down and I wanted to actually find an escape route to run Mm. off, to leave my child and run off until a nurse found me like strangely near the stairwell going, what are you doing here? Um, And took me back to the room. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm only doing this walk because I'm so unwell um, and I'm having all these kind of panicky, awful thoughts of death. And mm. um, But that's not what was projected on social media. And someone at home would have just gone, oh, doesn't she look amazing? Isn't mm. this great? Look, I feel so... Mismatch. I, it was just... A, um, anyway, so I, uh, things spiralled over the next few weeks. I got incredibly unwell um, where, you know, suicide ideations and thoughts of how my baby would die. Not that I was willing her to die, but I was just like, oh, if I stood near the steps and she fell out of my hand she'd probably crack her skull like these were the thoughts I couldn't stop and it was just horrible yeah I can imagine. um and I'd through work covered quite a lot of uh, mental illness and always took a an interest in mental health so I was in my head kind of ticking off the boxes going I can't eat I can't sleep I have all these kind of gastro issues I'm having um thoughts of death I find no joy in her company or being around my daughter my baby um so I'm like, I can't, I'm unwell, I'm unwell. Um, and then tried to mention it to my mother who was like, oh, you're just tired and people just kind of downplaying it. Um, but it kind of came to a head, um, again, only a few weeks, maybe three or four weeks postpartum and I'm driving somewhere and the baby's crying and I feel like, the, you know, the world's ending and I can't do this for another hour. And so I started to drive into oncoming traffic because I thought, this is it, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then I stopped people were beeping and then I stopped and then I called my parents and I was just like I think my husband was at work my parents lived close by and I was like you need to come you need to help me you need to come and obviously my parents rushed and they could sense the panic in my voice Um, 
but then my mother didn't know what to do because culturally mental illness isn't something yeah well back in the day I don't know what to do yeah um and they'd also lived through a lot of trauma themselves so they're thinking well what's you know what's her she's got it pretty good yeah um so I I I sensed mum kind of feeling well just deal with it you sook um dad making inappropriate I mean it's funny now but it's awful at the time dad was like oh somebody's sick but not in their body something like that I was like like he's, he's yeah. making a joke about me being sick in the head yeah. and just not knowing what to do. And so mum cooked like 12 dishes because it's all she could do. She's like, I'm just going to cook <laughs> and cleaned my house yeah. because she had no idea what other support to provide me. Um, and so, yeah, it was at that point that I then, you know, spoke to my sister and my husband and they realized just how unwell I was. And I, yeah, I had a wonderful GP who connected me with a psychiatrist who I do remember though, when I went to the GP and I, just essentially told him everything. I was really honest about how unwell I was. And I'd called every hotline, lifeline, and every mental, yeah, perinate, every service possible. Because uh, I felt less judged if I told them what I was actually thinking. And I remember I was at the GP's office, and it was Thursday. And he could obviously tell how unwell I was. So he's calling around trying to get me. And you know how it's hard with specialists to get Last appointments. Last minute, oh yeah. And so he's like, he's on the phone. And I can tell he's trying to call in favors and get someone and then he was like okay I've got you an appointment on Monday at 9 a.m and I'm thinking and I've said to him I can't make it I won't make it till Monday Mm. and then he's like I said I won't make it till Monday um and so at that point my yeah I was essentially um babysat from Mm. Thursday till Monday to get to that point um but that's yeah things started to turn around once I got all of that help perfect yeah Thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's that's okay. it's, hard. It's, it's a hard experience for you, so I do appreciate it. Um, I think I think it's really important for not only current mothers but up, up and coming mothers to know that these are emotions they they can experience, yeah. and you know it's it's okay if you do grapple with these feelings and yeah. thoughts, and you don't need to feel ashamed. You know yeah, there you is just, help out there. Yeah, you, it's difficult at the time. The shame and the guilt is. Is, it's all consuming. It's um, it envelopes you. It swallows you. Um, so I think for a while, in my experience, you're trying to deny it to yourself because yeah. the shame of admitting it it's an, it's an it's an awful thing to concede that you don't like your baby, you don't like yourself, that you would rather die than be a mother mm. because so many people were like, oh, I, I can't have children, or children um, gave me life, they gave me purpose. Mm. Um, yeah, so as, as painful as it is every time I talk about it, um, I do it because I think about that picture and I think about all the women at home who were looking at me and thinking, well, she's got her life together. She's got her career. And look, four days postpartum, she has her body. Um, and I think, no, I owe, it, I owe it to others to use my experience and my platform mm. to tell them, well, no, it can be anything but rosy. It can almost be over like yeah. it was in my case. Um, but that it's also can be more complex um, dealing with the cultural expectations and shame and barriers um, mm. coming from certain communities um, where mental illness is considered, you know, it's still something that's not spoken about or still something that's really shameful or, yeah. or in the context of um, certain cultures or certain families or refugee families like my family where they endured incredible hardships and civil war and death and you know my mother's seen things like you know after buildings exploded going at 17 going through bodies to try and find survivors and 
um, you know, like it's horrible, horrible trauma, horrible trauma. And then I can't help but think, oh, well, she must look at me and go, well, what trauma do you have? Mm. Um, but it's, it's not a competition of who, you know, it's not, it's not a competition of who can be worse. And, and, and sometimes, um, your life can be textbook perfect or social media perfect and you will still um, can still suffer suffer from mental illness of course um i think i think what's a nice correlation there is at the start we spoke about how you know you've got a newsroom now which is you know your very monocultural um panel i suppose reporting on all these different issues it's sort of the same if you're going to your your family or cultural community who don't speak about mental health and are and you know trying to get them to empathize with you on mental health that they just don't understand they don't have that insight into what it's like because you're right like back in the day the hardships were of a different caliber yeah and you know this this is sort of more of a bread and butter table conversation today yeah and i think there's no doubt that other women suffered my aunt um after i came out so now i'm a, a, a ambassador for the gidget foundation and i and i try and um support the work the amazing work they do to help um, parents struggling with depression and anxiety and I had a, one of my aunts uh, say to me oh that's what I had I didn't know but that's what I had I had I cried every day for two years wow. I hated my life I hated my children and I just think that poor woman for two years suffered yeah um, and I, I've no doubt there are countless others and I've no doubt there are there are those who continue and men uh, this is not just about women this is yeah. men as well um, in the end my husband suffered as well seeing the way I was and then he started being anxious you know like it, yeah. it affects everybody of course um, and it is, it's an ongoing journey yeah and I think it's a nice um, a nice reminder to everyone you know you can't take social media for what it is on its face value because yeah. I mean, there are people online nowadays which show a more realistic version and wrap of their lives and, you know, you've got the... Some do. You know, some do, but majority, I would say. And that's what social media is for. It's a highlights reel. That's that's literally its purpose. And you have to remember that when you're, you know, comparing yourself and and really try and not do that if you can. It's really hard. It's very hard. hard. um, You know, and and there are, are, um, you know, there are considerations for when you are raw or real or down do you want that documented like my very kind of traumatic experience is well documented you know and it's something I babble you know I'm babbling and talking about or all snotty and you know sometimes I wonder my little girl's now five and she's just the most amazing thing um but she's going to be old enough soon to um to read these things and to listen to this and a part of me was like oh do I want her do I want her hearing about how I was about to drive us both into oncoming traffic? Um, but I, I think the the greater, under, no, the, the more people understand, including her, about mental illness, hopefully. It's um, for the greater good. I hope so. Yes. I, I, so. Do, I do think <laughs> I so. so. I do think so. Um, one last story, or I guess like experience from your life that I really wanted to chat to you about. Yeah was this uh, miracle viewer <laughs> yeah. that you had in your life. So yeah. um, I won't tell the story too much, but um, essentially you were reporting on TV and you had a viewer that noticed a, an odd lump yeah. in your neck and wrote in. And, yeah. you know, the rest yeah, is so history. I was, I was on air on Studio 10 on the panel chatting to um, all the co-hosts and um, a, a lovely woman from Victoria, a grandmother from regional Victoria, wrote into 10's Facebook page and said, um, I don't mean to, this might sound strange, but I, there's, a, there's a lump on Antoinette's throat and I think she should get it checked out. My editor called me over straight away and said, check this out. And I went back and looked, up, looked over 
um, the the footage and I couldn't believe it because ordinarily if, if I'm just looking straight you do, you wouldn't see it but because I was kind of chatting to people on the couch mm. my, my neck was turned and it was like it was like an Adam's apple it was it was huge mm. um, and you may be able to see I have a in my neck that's Literally. where the operation was um, so I went to the I went to the um, the doctors that afternoon and over the next couple of weeks I had all these scans and blood tests and it turned out that I had a large cyst that was growing on my voice box and that I also had an autoimmune disease Hashimoto's linked to um uh linked to this lump um so I had surgery to remove it um look the 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 lump wasn't going to kill me um but it was getting large enough that it was starting to go into my vocal cords so it can affect your ability to swallow but also affect your voice if not permanently damage your voice and as we know my my voice is my career um but it was also finding the autoimmune disease which is probably the more serious part and something I have to manage for the rest of my life all because of a, a lovely act of kindness from a from a woman at home I love that it's yeah, like a miracle story it is it um, is but what interests me more is uh, I, th- I think you wrote or you had an interview shortly after and you yes. were speaking about how um, you know it was unremarkable about your rem- yes. remarkable neck and how how it said more about Yes. us as a society than, yes. than the actual issue so I'd love for you to just share your there opinion was, there was so much coverage of it like so I wrote a piece just going you know this is a strange thing happened it should probably save my career and it was a real act of kindness but then the story and you know her name's Wendy and we're still in touch went when I, I hate to say went viral because it sounds like such a cliche but I mean, broke it was, the internet. It broke the internet. <laughs> it was everywhere. Yeah. It was in Asian press, in um, other languages, in, in in Europe. A friend of mine who lives in Canada was like, two women at the gym were just talking about your neck. Like everybody <laughs> was talking about How this. Funny. And I was like, what's so interesting? Because really, like, I wasn't on my deathbed. Um, and it's so funny, like ex-boyfriends came out of the woodwork thinking like, are you okay? You're going to die? Because with each circulation of the article, it became more and more dramatic. I was like, no, I'm going to be fine. Like, I'm going to get on top of it. Chinese um, whispers. So by the last By the post, last of it, my brother's like, am I going to your funeral next week? What's going on? <laughs> and I was like, no, people were so hungry for the internet to show humanity and kindness. Because ordinarily, if I get contacted on the internet, it's usually to say something really racist or sexist or uh, make threat, had threat, death threats. And mm. people are generally their most awful selves on the internet. Um, and so I think people were really heartened or uplifted by the fact that this was just someone going out of their way to do something kind for um, a perfect stranger. And if anything, it said the response to the article said more about this gap in kindness and connection than it did about really like there, are, I kept thought to myself, there are so many people with much more complex sinister horrible illnesses than what i have Mm. and they're not getting any attention i was like it wasn't about me it was about what wendy did and it was about this toxic place that's the internet Mm. and people really being inspired by an act of kindness Mm. no i think that's um something interesting to ruminate on and um you know i i always think when you have these things like Black Lives Matter or, or recently we've had the women, people posting black and white photos of, of women online. Um, it's interesting how everyone sort of jumps on these bandwagons when, yeah. when there is like a, a sense of community or a sense of togetherness or kindness. And do you think that that's problematic for, um, especially like the younger, the younger generation up and coming? Well, I think it's very shallow. Mm. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed posting what I considered a very flattering black and white selfie of myself, <laughs> but in terms of a deeper connection and meaning, and mm. I like when people posted the black square for black lives matter, um, 
and not to say people who posted that don't care about it, but there was a criticism that it's really quite surface level. There's no follow through. Well, that's right. What are you doing? What, what are you actually, you know, what are you actually doing um, in terms of that portrait of women supporting women other than, you know, finding your best angle and finding, you know, sharing a photo of you looking fabulous. What are you actually doing? Um, and I think it is a problem with people, uh, perhaps a little, you know, a little bit younger than me. Um, like I've got nephews who are in their late teens where connection is entirely fostered by the internet like i knew a world and friendships and a life before social media like social media came really became popular while i was at university Mm -hmm. but i knew a life before then and i think it's more problematic for those people whose entire worlds and connections have been you know they are the facebook and electronic generation Mm. um and it's well documented um in reports in incidents of mental illness um facebook and social media makes us um more depressed, more anxious, mm. more polarised, less connected, mm. um, less able to have face-to-face confrontation and conflict. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it is problematic. And I think the issues that it's generating will just continue to grow and will understand it more as they... as um, Manifest. As they manifest, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I think it's something we all know. We all know that, you know... We probably spend too much time on social oh, media. I, know. We're, we're, I, do, yeah. I know. I can definitely say that yeah. I do as well. And you know, when you go away for a weekend and you're not on your phone, you're like, oh, I was detached from social media. Like I feel yeah. so refreshed. But we never, we, we try not to do that in yeah. our day to day life. So I think it's interesting, kind of watch this space, kind of yeah, situation. It's, it's a problem, watch this problematic space, especially especially in the pandemic, as you know, not so much in New South Wales, but you know, in Victoria, which has bought um, bore the brunt of this worse. Mm. Um, People are spending so much time on it. And I'm imagining, and I have my sister in Melbourne, um, you know, I was at a wedding on the weekend and she was at home not able to leave her house for more than a 40-minute walk. walk. Yeah. You know, I think that um, that those kind of divisions and, and FOMO and depression yeah. and whatever it is, um, is just going to yeah, continue to grow, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so that is why, to go back to the neck, why <laughs> people were so heartened by the story because mm. it showed a positive side of a pretty ugly place. Yeah, yep. no, I love that. Uh, after reading your opinion, I was like, I actually was one of those people that was like, oh my god, that's amazing, like, yeah, that's so nice. But then you know, when you reel it back, you're thinking, yeah, it does it does illuminate a bit of a gap? So I, yeah. I love that take on it. I thought oh. that was really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Because my my editor came to me and said, I want you to write about this. I was like, oh, please don't, <laughs> not like, another one, <laughs> not, not, not again. And I feel bad because yeah. there there are amazing medical practitioners and people surviving all these you know atrocities mm. and doing these amazing things. And all I did was like show up. I didn't do anything. Mm. And so that's when I decided, no, I want to make this about the loss of human connection. Mm. Um, and I think that's really what we what we have and what's going to continue to worsen. Yeah, and I think it's what you're remembered for, the way you're, you connect with people, you know, it, it enhances your life in so many ways. Yeah. So, yeah, that's I think that's very powerful. Oh, thank you. But um, thank you so much for everything you shared today. Oh, I know some you. things were tough. I know yes. some things were exciting. <laughs> yeah. and I can't wait to see what you do with um, media diversity and how it shapes the industry and yeah. how you continue to make an impact based off your own experience and help others who have, you know, gone through your own challenges. Oh, thank challenges. you. Um, Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. No problem at all. And that's a wrap for this week, Balancers. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found this episode useful to some degree in either steering or determining your definition of balance today. As always, the biggest compliment for us is if you share this episode with someone who you feel might need it. Or if you're on Spotify, you can click follow or on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating or review. 
If you have any suggestions for up and coming podcasts, feel free to shoot us a DM or an email. Our Instagram is at the balance theory and our email is the balance theory podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, you've always got the option of subscribing to our mailing list. We only send you email reminders when the episodes drop so you get them fresh out of the oven. No annoying spam, we promise. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and until next time, stay balanced. Stop, stop, stop.